could turn in a Bible to Ecclesiastes, if you have one with you, or the text is printed in the bulletin on the next page, if you don't have one. Ecclesiastes is um, in the Old Testament. Um, It's one of the wisdom writings. You'll find it after Job and Psalms and Proverbs. Um, uh, So I know I've joked around a little bit uh, last week, anyway, about being outvoted uh, into doing this series. Uh, But actually, I'm really excited about it. Maybe that gives you pause. Maybe that scares you a little bit. What kind of person is excited about Ecclesiastes? Um, (laughs) Watch out for people like that. Uh, I know I'm not the only crazy person here who's looking forward to this, Um, but I also know that it's a hard book for a lot of people. And there are uh, many Christians who wonder why this is even in the Bible at all, this book. Um, So I'm going to read just a little uh, well, it's a big paragraph from Zach Eswine. He's one of the, uh, he's got one of the books that I've uh, been reading and that uh, I've recommended to you on the church blog. There's a uh, post about resources, um, resources for the reading through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, he's got a book. Zach Eswine says this. Many Christians have grown up traveling the prophetic roads of the Old Testament and the Pauline highways of the New Testament. Wisdom highways are less traveled. The Song of Solomon is like a back road brothel to us. As a young man, I was told by a pastor not to read this book until after I was married. Job is like a long stretch of desert road with no nightlight and no gas stations or rest stops for miles. People can get stuck out there with no help, so we rarely travel there without a great deal of preparation. James is like an old law building that doesn't seem to fit the gospel landscape. We drive around it and wonder if we should bulldoze it. Ecclesiastes sounds like a crazed man downtown. He smells like he hasn't bathed, looks like it too. And as we pass by, he won't stop glaring at us and beckoning to us that our lives are built on illusions and that we're all going to die. So most of us choose to get our lunch at a different shop on a less dreary corner of town. Most of us choose to do our devotional reading somewhere other than Ecclesiastes. <laughs> Ecclesiastes, uh, it doesn't just ask hard, uncomfortable questions. It gives hard, uncomfortable answers. It's a book that we have to wrestle with. And that wrestling will take everything we've got, but it rewards our wrestling with clarity and wisdom and even with joy. It's the most timely book, it's a relevant book, and uh, a relatable book, and it has special value for talking with our non-Christian friends who might be asking hard, honest questions about life. I think this series will probably be pretty accessible for our unbelieving friends as we look at Ecclesiastes. As hard as it might be to understand, it is Holy Scripture, it's God-breathed, it's profitable to us, and, and ultimately, therefore, it it directs our hearts and our minds to Jesus. Uh, I had been planning to uh, cover the first 11 verses this morning. That's what's printed in most of your bulletins there. The first 11 verses. I was going to give an introduction to the whole book, which basically the first three verses do that really well. And then uh, move into the first argument, which is verses 4 through 11. Uh, as I was preparing, I realized that that just needs to be two sermons. So... I think that's too much to cover this morning, so we'll just talk about the first three verses as an overview of the book. 
So let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, this book is strange to many of us. We pray that you would help all of us to hear what you are saying and to see Jesus as the answer to all of our most difficult questions. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ecclesiastes 1, the first three verses. And I'm reading from a slightly altered translation of the ESV, which is uh, it's printed here for you. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vapor of vapors, says the preacher. Vapor of vapors. All is vapor. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So there are three terms or phrases that we find uh, repeated throughout the book of Ecclesiastes that will help us get a good sense of what it's all about. And they're all right here um, in the first three verses. Preacher. Vapor, or vanity, as your translation might have it, probably, uh, and under the sun. Preacher, vapor, and under the sun. Uh, The main character of the book, so to speak, identifies himself as, uh, in Hebrew, the word is koheleth. Koheleth, which is translated here as preacher. I call him the main character because uh, he may or may not be the overall author of the book. Um, It seems like probably he isn't the author of the book, Koheleth, or not the overall compiler of all these sayings and final editor or whatever. Um, He's sort of the main character, right? The bulk of the teaching of the book is attributed to Koheleth. These are the words of Koheleth, the words of the preacher, the words of the teacher. But it's attributed to him by someone else, which um, the author of the book maybe has collected the words of Koheleth here. At the end of the book, in Ecclesiastes 12, the author is referring to Koheleth. He's referring to the preacher in the third person again. Um, and he gives a brief analysis of Koheleth's words. Right, so the bulk of the book is Koheleth speaking the words of Koheleth. And then at the end, sort of the author or compiler or editor, uh, or maybe Koheleth himself, just referring to himself in the third person, uh, refers to him and it gives an analysis of the, the teachings. So who's the author? Who is the author? What's his name? We don't know. He doesn't uh, give us his name. Who's Koheleth? Koheleth, the preacher, the main voice throughout the book. We really don't know that either. Uh, He doesn't identify himself by name. Uh, Jewish and Christian tradition says it's Solomon. Solomon who wrote the majority of the the wisdom writings. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon is usually attributed to him uh, in Jewish and Christian tradition. Many good scholars today doubt that Solomon wrote this, and they suggest that uh, perhaps the author uh, created the character Koheleth to be a Solomon persona, uh, sort of writing from Solomon's perspective with Solomon's voice to call to mind the great wisdom and experience of Solomon as we read. I'm not really sure it matters whether Solomon himself wrote it or somebody wrote it sort of channeling uh, Solomon. Um, we, we won't spend a lot of time in that debate. Whether the preacher, the Koheleth, is Solomon or someone else was channeling him or whatever, he isn't identified by name. That's not the important part of his identification here. 
He's identified by his office. He's identified by his title. Koheleth is a title. It's an office. That's why preacher is a decent translation of that word. Um, Koheleth in Hebrew shares a root with the word for assembly or congregation. Uh, So Koheleth is the one who assembles the congregation. In 1 Kings chapter 8, those words are used several times of Solomon who assembled the people and the assembly of the people as they came together as he brought them into the newly constructed temple for prayer and for instruction and for worship. So this is where we get the name of the book, right? The name of the book, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is the old Greek translation of Koheleth. Uh, the Septuagint, the old Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, translates Koheleth as Ecclesiastes which in Greek is related to the the Greek word for assembly or congregation, or it's the New Testament word for church. Ecclesia is the word for church, so Ecclesiastes comes from that. So preacher, it's a decent translation, Uh, probably use it a bunch, but maybe the most direct translation, kind of a woodenly literal translation would be, uh, these are the words of the churchman. The churchman. Uh, Koheleth, or Ecclesiastes, the churchman is the one who gathers the church together for worship and for prayer and for discipleship and for instruction. And that means his words are for us. His wisdom is for us. The gathered people of God are called to pay attention to his words. We should be the first ones to hear these words. We should be the first ones to confess the truth of these words and to respond to these words. We should not shy away from these words, even though they are so stark in our ears right from the very beginning. The very first thing he says, vapor. All is vapor. So you're probably familiar with how that word is usually translated as uh, vanity. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That comes from the King James Version and is maintained in a lot of the... um, the, the English versions today. <clears throat> so I've included a little footnote in the liturgy that explains, sorry, a lot of Hebrew stuff going on today, sort of background introduction, but I think it's helpful to figure out these terms and phrases. Um, the, the Hebrew word hebel is, is translated literally, literally as vapor or breath or mist or maybe smoke. Right? So it's like one's visible breath on a cold day. I think that's the best picture that we can get of what this is. Hevel is it's insubstantial, it's elusive, and it's fleeting. So the ESV follows several other versions. Again, uh, and, um, and several other versions follow the King James Version in translating it not literally as vapor, but figuratively as sort of what vapor means, right? And they translate it as vanity and it highlights the connotations of emptiness and futility. Everything is temporary. Everything is futile. Everything is meaningless. That's what is being said here. Uh, so those are hard words. All is vapor, repeatedly, emphatically. Surely those are the words for the nihilists and not for the believers, right? No, that's the word for the church. Ecclesiastes insists on it emphatically. Everything is insubstantial, 
and elusive and fleeting as, as a puff of breath, breath on a cold day. So if you're hoping to find some lasting good in this world, which I think is just pretty basic to all of our nature as human beings, if you're hoping to find some lasting good in this world, you're going to be sorely disappointed. If you're on a quest to find ultimate meaning in this world, your search will be in vain, entirely and utterly. In this world. Right, that's the operative phrase. In this world, under the sun. That phrase, that phrase or its equivalent, occurs more than 30 times in the book. That's the setting for the search for significance. That's the angle that the churchman is taking the realm of his exploration. In various ventures, he's applying all of his piercing wisdom to see if he can find anything of lasting substance under the sun. Which is a way of talking about the observable world, the material world. The the Hebrews conceived of creation as, as two realms, heaven and earth, or the heavens and the earth. You see that right at the beginning of Genesis chapter 1. This is God's creation. And these two realms are divided by the vault of the sky where the sun has been placed to dominate everything, to rule the sky. It dominates space and it measures time for us. So earth is the place under the sun where we live out our lives. Heaven is the place beyond the sun. Heaven is a place beyond the sun. It's a place we cannot see. It's a place God has made where he dwells in a special way, a place where his reality is definitive of the experience. We live on earth. All that we can see is the material world under the sun. Anything you can access, anything you can engage in, anything you can manipulate or shape or try to change. It's in this world. It's under the sun. We know that this earthly realm uh, extends beyond the sun in spatial terms. We're not taking under the sun literalistically. Right? It's figurative language. If you were on Mars, or if you were flying through space in another galaxy, you would still be in the realm of this world, according to the Hebrew mindset, the, the Hebrew scriptures. Physically speaking, heaven's not just the other side of the sun, hiding behind it spatially. Right? Heaven is another realm Altogether, It's a different kind of place with its own space and time that you can't get to with a rocket or even see with a telescope if you could see across the whole universe. But you get the picture, right? It's, it's, it's imagery. It's figurative language. Under the sun is this world. It's this life. And Ecclesiastes says over and over again, he explores the realm under the sun, the things that are visible rather than invisible, the things that are earthly as distinct from heavenly. He's exploring life from a, a man-centered perspective. His starting point sort of excludes God to some degree. God doesn't get much mention in his explorations. Not that he outright denies the existence of God, uh, but for the sake of argument, he proposes, he proposes this assumption that God really isn't relevant to the discussion as these terms, right? He's... He's exploring only the things under the sun. 
Only the things under the sun are to be considered in this search for meaning, search for significance, search for purpose, search for something that good that lasts. And he comes to the forceful conclusion that if this world is all there is, then it's vapor. All of it's vapor. And we said this all along. If there's no God, if there's no heaven, if the material world is all there is, if the nihilists are right, then nothing really matters. Nothing really matters. I've got the Queen song ringing in my head. Ecclesiastes repeats that phrase under the sun so many times, it's hard to ignore that he's implying something here, right? He's implying if you want to find anything of lasting significance, of real meaning and substance, it's going to have to come from somewhere else, beyond the sun. If your life is worth living at all, it'll be because of something you can't see in this observable realm. If there's any eternal meaning and true substance, it's something that we find in the God who dwells in heaven. Ecclesiastes, the churchman, he's brutally honest about this, and he shows his work throughout his book as he reports on all his findings, all the explorations, all the avenues, all the angles that he takes, trying to answer these questions. In his wisdom, with the great resources available to him, think of Solomon, think the wisest and wealthiest king ever in the history of the world. He, he pursued every avenue available to him to know whether there was anything of substance to be found under the sun. And throughout the book, time and again, the, the answer is a res- resounding no. If you don't factor in any invisible realities beyond this perceivable world, then it really doesn't matter whether you're good or bad. It doesn't matter whether you work or become wealthy. Your life will never amount to anything. You'll never find ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction. You have no hope for the future. And this is largely attributed to the fact that you're going to die and you're going to be forgotten. If something's going to give you and your life lasting significance, it's going to have to address the problem of death. This book does that. Uh, the Calvin and Hobbes cartoon that's uh, there in the bulletins uh, on the page after where the uh, sermon text is printed. I think it sums up pretty well the negative message of Ecclesiastes. The things that are being ruled out, the negative aspects that are really hard for a lot of us uh, to look at. Um, Calvin says, the problem with people is they don't look at the big picture. Eventually, we're each going to die, our species will go extinct, the sun will explode, and the universe will collapse. Existence is not only temporary, it's pointless. We're all doomed, and worse, nothing matters. Hobbes says, I see why people don't like to look at the big picture. (laughs) So it's clear why we don't want to look at the big picture, why we don't want to hear what Ecclesiastes has to say, why we do our devotional reading in some, some other aspect or some other part of the scriptures, Right? All the things around you that you invest your life in, all the things in this world that you care about most, that they give you purpose or a sense of meaning, all the things you look to for your identity, they don't matter. They don't even matter. Not in any real, important, lasting sense. Considering only what is under the sun, your craft doesn't matter. Your career 
doesn't matter. Your education doesn't matter. Your wealth and your possessions don't matter. What happens in Washington, D.C. or in Salem, that doesn't matter. What happens with COVID doesn't matter. The plastic in the oceans doesn't matter. Your charity doesn't matter. Your family doesn't matter. Your righteousness doesn't matter. If under the sun is all that is real, then all of it is vapor. You can't, you can't capture it. You can't keep it. You can't preserve it. You can't even see it for a very long time before it disappears and disappears even from memory. We find the same teaching in other wisdom writings in Scripture. Uh, go home and read Psalm 39 today that uh, David wrote. David says, and this is <clears throat> printed on the next page, uh, one of the quotes there. <clears throat> Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5. O Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you've made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. And that's that word vapor. Or James. In the New Testament, in chapter 4, he writes, What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. So Ecclesiastes isn't the only one who talks this way in the Bible. He's just the most direct. He's the most blunt. Under the sun, all is vapor. And the only way that this revelation won't absolutely crush you with despair is is if you know the bigger picture. Not just the big picture, the bigger picture of the gospel. Ecclesiastes, it does a lot of hinting and a lot of implying. It becomes clear at the end of the book that this isn't just all written to make you hopeless and cynical, to take away your reason for living. Right At the end of the book, we're told that God will judge everything that we've ever done says in the last verse of the book, uh, in chapter 12, verse 14, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And that means that everything has significance with regard to him. The only way anything can have significance is with regard to God. Everything in your life matters when it doesn't exist merely under the sun, but when it's brought into the light of heaven and eternity. Everything matters when brought into your relationship with God. Everything matters not just because you think it matters, and maybe not in the ways that you think it matters. Everything matters because God thinks it matters, because God says it matters, Because God cares about everything that happens in your life and everything that happens in this world. So if you want to live in, uh, you might call it an enchanted world. right? A world where you know that your life and your relationships and all things have real meaning. Maybe it's hidden meaning. But real meaning. If you want to live in a life and a world where purpose and wonder and glory, they're not just pretend. They're not just stuff you make up so that you can cope with your day then you have to listen to God. You have to live with reference to God. You have to fear God. That's what this book says. You have to see your life as centered on God. So this book, 
is like another wisdom writing in the scripture, uh, Job, where the ending of the book really changes the way that you read it, how you read the whole book. Once you know where this book is going, then it really helps you to be able to take the hard journey, to take a hard look at reality apart from God, as Ecclesiastes lays it out. And we have the privilege of knowing not just how this one book turns out with the assurance that God is there, he's real, he cares, he says everything matters to him, he's going to judge every single thing that's ever happened, he's going he's to judge it, and he's going to make it right. Not only do we know the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, we know the whole gospel story. We don't have to ignore the context of the rest of the Bible in order to faithfully read Ecclesiastes. On the contrary, one can only read Ecclesiastes faithfully by reading it ultimately in light of Jesus. We should read all the earlier parts of the Bible in light of the later parts, especially in light of the clear revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we get this this concept that um, things are so desperate here under the sun. We need life to be about more than just what is under the sun. We need that. Jesus is the one who came from beyond the sun. We have our origins here under the sun. He has his origins elsewhere, beyond the sun. Jesus is the invisible God who became visible, who took on our flesh. Jesus left his home in eternity to step into our time and space. His life is a testimony that this world under the sun is not all there is. His, his simple, his mere existence testifies to the fact that this world is not all there is. And that it is God's will that the, the worlds would be, the realities would be connected. Yeah? Jesus has united heaven and earth in himself. He's brought heaven to earth, so to speak, in his incarnation. And after his death and resurrection, he brought earth into heaven at his ascension. Jesus has made the way for us to join him beyond the sun. He's opened the way for us to follow him into everlasting glory. And that, that's the opposite of vapor. Right? Vapor is insubstantial and fleeting. The glory of God is real and substantial and weighty. That's what the word glory means in Hebrew. The glory of something is its substance, its weightiness. <clears throat> the glory of God is real, it's substantial, and it's eternal, and it's promised to you through your relationship with Jesus. And in fact, because of your relationship with Jesus, right now, you're to consider yourself as raised beyond the sun. Right now, you're to consider your, your life in light of his eternal glory. That's the New Testament reading that Ransom read from Colossians 3. <clears throat> if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, under the sun. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Real, substantial, everlasting glory that comes through our union with Christ. 
your relationship with Jesus is literally the only thing that can give your life meaning. And it gives your life meaning beyond your ability to comprehend it. If you're connected to the one who's in heaven, then everything in your life has heavenly, eternal significance because of him. Because of him. Jesus is for us. Wisdom from God. This is the wisdom that Ecclesiastes gives us as a gift. Even as he strips away all our other merely earthly hopes. Ecclesiastes gives us the ability to face reality honestly. Gives us the wisdom of fearing God all our lives. The wisdom of seeing everything in this world in light of our relationship with Jesus. That's the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Don't shy away from this wisdom. Get this wisdom. Amen. Let's pray. Father, when we live without reference to you, we are fools. We pray that you would give us the wisdom that comes from fearing you, the wisdom of knowing you through Jesus, the wisdom that transforms our perception of everything in this world as we bring it all into our relationship with you. We pray that you'd help us to fix our eyes on your Son, who is truly our only hope in this life and in the next. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.